Welcome to the LA Public Health Podcast for Thursday, June 11th, 2020. I'm Steve Baldwin, and earlier today, I spent some time with Dr. Muntu Davis, health officer with the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. We talked about a range of topics, including the disparate impact of COVID-19 on communities of color, approaches the department and others are taking to reduce these inequities, and why police brutality and racism is a public health issue. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for some additional information and links to help you stay informed and connected with the department's work. But for now, here's my conversation with Dr. Muntu Davis. Dr. Davis, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm wondering if we could just start by you sharing a little bit about yourself, your background and and your experience in public health before you joined our department here in L.A. Uh, so yes, I'm Dr. Muntu Davis. Uh, I am a family physician by training, uh, practice for about 15 years, uh, providing direct care to patients. Uh, and then over the last, uh, about 13, 14 years, uh, have been in public health in some role as a, a health officer, um, inside of, uh, two local jurisdictions. Just curious why the change from direct patient care to public health? You know, I I started to see some problems across the populations that I saw. Each patient that I saw uh, was struggling to actually control and prevent their, you know, uh, coming down with some underlying health condition like diabetes or high blood pressure or even having difficulty controlling that. And it was really one day when I asked a patient, you know, we talk about you exercising, we talk about you eating, and you know all of those things. Um, You know, why haven't you been able to maintain and do these things? And really it was a stark reality that the person said, I don't have these things around me or it's not safe. Um, so me saying, you know, eat fresh fruits and vegetables, you know, five times a day, you know, and them not having access to it or being extraordinarily expensive, you know, it's tough for someone to follow. Um, or me saying exercise, even if you can't go to the gym, go out and walk, you know, it's tough when you're living in a neighborhood that's unsafe. Uh, so there were lots of things that I felt like I was telling people to do that they couldn't follow because of the environments that they were in. The term that we throw around a lot is the social determinants of health, right? Those are the things that are around our environment that prevent us from being healthy. Yeah. And social determinants is, is both the physical environment uh, that you're in, as well as some of the social contacts that you're in. Uh, so issues like housing or education uh, are also a part of that, not just you know having access to affordable, healthy food, not just living in a safe neighborhood, but also air quality. You know, those things also impact your health. So in your role as health officer for our department, what exactly does that mean? What do you do here in the department? So my responsibility is to have oversight and sort of be the final advisor or decision maker around the clinical and medical aspects uh, within public health. Uh, And in these instances, like an emergency, then I am the person that, you know, signs the health officer order uh, that directs certain activities, you know, during a public health emergency, uh, as well as, you know, declaring a local public health emergency. Um, very uh, focused in on the clinical medical side, uh, whereas Dr. Ferrer, our director, has the strategic oversight, administrative oversight uh, in terms of the department uh, as a whole. And we work very closely in terms of thinking about what needs to happen you know, during this time of a pandemic or with other aspects and other programs and diseases uh, to ensure that we're both supporting the medical and clinical side as well as the other non-medical and clinical aspects that are needed uh, to actually do what's needed to control those diseases. We are conducting this interview in the middle of a pandemic. 
with COVID-19 still very active across our state and certainly our county. But the COVID-19 crisis has impacted some communities more than others. Can you talk a little bit about the impact on, on communities of color in particular? In fact, at a recent press briefing, Dr. Ferrer called for immediate action to help correct the disparate impact and disproportionality of the spread of COVID-19. Can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. You know, when this pandemic first started, we knew that the risk factors were really traveling to China. Uh, that's where, you know, this infection was first identified uh, and where we saw most people were being infected. And so those who were traveling. And what's interesting about it, if you think about it, only those who are going to travel, uh, you know, to a country are typically of higher income, uh, maybe traveling for business. Uh, and then we started to see as the infection became more widespread that it began to be people who traveled anywhere, whether it was nationally or internationally, um, as more community transmission uh, came into play. And then as it really settled into being inside of our community, inside of Los Angeles County, we started to see more uh, areas of uh, higher poverty uh, or more concentrated poverty uh, being more infected in terms of their rates, as well as seeing more communities of color uh, being infected or having serious impacts. So on the one hand, we have, at least at this point last week, we had about 61% of the cases were in the Latinx population. Uh, and when we looked at deaths, uh, the rates were much higher within the African-American community yeah. or the Latinx community in comparison to other populations. Uh, Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander were also higher in terms of having a serious illness or death. And so we started to see this shift from what you would see as a higher income disease based on the risk of travel uh, to really being settled into the community and impacting our populations that are already impacted by a number of other things. Do we have a sense for why communities of color and um, communities where poverty is more prevalent are, are more greatly impacted by COVID-19 than others? Yes, I, th I think this is really not anything new. Um, I think this, these things that um, are the drivers of this have been the drivers of many other uh, poor health outcomes that we've seen in, some, some, in the same populations. Um, on the one hand, when this first started with testing, uh, testing was much more available in your more affluent communities. This is before it, we started to do public uh, testing and having drive-through sites or drive-up sites for testing. And, you know, if it's at uh, areas of uh, higher in income, then you're not going to get as many, you're not going to see as many uh, tests and positive in terms of other groups. Uh, and then over time, as we start to get more testing into those communities, we actually start to see the infections there. Uh, the other thought has been that because a lot of the businesses that were essential, meaning those that are day-to-day -day needs for every one of our health and, and well-being, you know, whether it's the the grocery store, or whether it's the pharmacy, uh, or whether it's the provider's office, you know, those places uh, typically have uh, a lot of people, um, you know, from these same groups. And so, you know, were they more exposed, uh, you know, during this time, just being out and about and interacting with the public, as we continue to learn more about this disease. Mm. Um, over time, we started to understand that the disease uh, could be transmitted by people who were asymptomatic uh, and infected. Um, and that was, you know, before we started to add things like face coverings for everybody when they go into a business. And so we've been learning as we go. But I think they've been out and about and possibly more exposed and then having uh, less access to the testing resources um, have been things that have really been at play here. 
The department recently outlined a set of strategies that we are taking to reduce inequities related to COVID-19. Can you maybe walk us through some of those strategies that the department is undertaking? Sure. And this is not just the department. We you know, are, are really a, a convener of those who have the ability and the authority to do all of this. Um, but we have identified these things and are working with many other departments, uh, including our Department of Mental Health and our Department of Health Services, uh, among others, and, and as well as community-based organizations. So one of the first strategies that was identified is we, in order to figure out what to do, we have to ensure that testing is available. Mm. Um, if you can't identify the disease, it's very hard to, to figure out what you need to do to control it. And one of the mainstays that we have in terms of infectious diseases is uh, doing our case investigations, someone who is positive for the disease, talking with them to figure out where they were during the time that they could have potentially infected others and who they may have been in close contact with during those times. And then identifying their close contacts and then educating them about their risk of developing the disease and giving them information about what they need to do to prevent spreading it to others and what to look out for to see if the disease is actually going to show up. So testing is very important. Um, the other thing that was important for us to think about is once a person is positive, care coordination. Are they connected to a medical provider uh, and who could advise them based on their own underlying health status on what to do, what to watch out for, and provide advice should their, their symptoms change? And that care coordination is ideally provided by part, not just DPH staff, but we're talking about a, a, a wide range of partners, I imagine. Well, when I say care coordination, I mean patient-doctor coordination. So Got what's it. happening with their health, uh, what advice do they have for them, you know, given their underlying health conditions, if any. Uh, what should they do? When should they go to the hospital? And sort of monitoring that, their, their care, okay. uh, their medical care. Uh, the other thing that we think is important, it's it's not come up as much now, but that treatment that is effective at preventing these serious outcomes that we see with this illness are also available um, in these same communities that are highly impacted. And I say it's not available right now because it's, it's still being researched as this is a very still a very new disease, and many treatment algorithms and protocols are being uh, assessed to see how effective they are at preventing hospitalizations and deaths. Um, the other thing are, are supportive services uh, that are needed. So in this instance of a person being identified as uh, COVID-19 positive, um, at a minimum, they're out of work uh, for 10 days and away from others for 10 days. Mm-hmm. Um, what is needed in order to ensure that their basic needs are still met? Uh, and they're not supposed to go out to get food. You know, So those things that are needed to support their being able to to maintain themselves from others is important as well. Is, is 211 LA the primary source for accessing those types of like social services and, and supports that a client, uh, someone that's positive can access? It's a central location, you know, for various uh, different aspects of, of support uh, resources that might be needed. So it's a good place to call um, and ask for, you know, what you need or where, what's near me that can help me with these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the only place, but there are other community-based organizations that may be able to do that as well. And that's where we're trying to identify uh, which ones uh, and what resources or opportunities they have to really connect and support folks as they're going through isolation or quarantine. 
Um, then we also want to make sure on the community engagement side that we're hearing from the community. You know, how are things going in terms of the strategies being implemented? Uh, what things might we change or improve as a county uh, and as the organizations doing these things in order to improve uh, the outcomes that we want to see or make it easier for them to engage? And what are some of the ways that we're outreaching to the community to get that information? Um, a simple way is, you know, even thinking about our messaging. We may create a draft message. We think it's really good here. But taking it to a, a small group of community members mm. uh, that is it's targeted for and getting their feedback on it. Have we said something that um, we didn't intend to say? Is it implying something that we didn't intend to apply, imply? Mm-hmm. Or is this clear enough that it, it gives you some not good knowledge and action, uh, you know, to help know what to do in, you know, whatever the situation is? Um, and the other is really about um, feedback just in terms of, of us providing a service. You know, have we met your need? Um, you know, is there something more? And then, you know, getting that feedback and trying to figure out how we can improve. Got it. Um, some other areas, um, I talked a little bit about the contract tracing piece. Um, it was important initially. There was a lot of criticism, you know, saying that the public health department didn't uh, break down the data by race or ethnicity. So data was another component. Um, and it wasn't in fact that we didn't, um, you know, uh, that it wasn't, that it was us as the public health department, not breaking down the data. It was really that, uh, from the information that we were getting, that data was missing. And so each time we talk to a person, we, uh, identify what race or ethnicity they have, or they identify as, and then we use that information to then analyze our data. But people have to recall, we were getting thousands of cases a day. And so it takes time to go through all of those to really be able to have some good, accurate information if the information is missing from the data that we receive, um, you know, from the disease report or the lab report. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And then the last thing is really um, around uh, communication, Mm. Uh, making sure we're getting uh, good, accurate and timely information out, uh, which may not only come from us, but from other organizations or institutions that the community trusts more. Um, So making sure that they also have accurate information to be able to push out uh, and share with the communities that we're concerned about. Are there policies that we're working on developing to support uh, continued funding or community support around COVID-19? Well, policy is an interesting term, and that is actually (laughs) the the, really the last uh, the last uh, strategy. Um, Policy can be both legislated policy. Um, so whether it's an ordinance or a motion or something that, say, the Board of Supervisors does, or there's some po- internal policy in terms of a department. Mm. Um, so how we think about, you know, where we may put a testing site, what data do we use to identify whether or not a community is highly impacted or under-resourced. Um, that's really a departmental policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are also policies around, you know, how do we, uh, what's the direction in terms of what do we do with our funding? Um, you know, do we uh, engage with community-based organizations? And then on the legislative side, um, policies like, you know, it's interesting when I think about the data piece, um, the requirement for healthcare providers and facilities to report race ethnicity is in California legislation. When you look at the laboratory reporting requirement, it does not have race or ethnicity. So that is a legislative policy that would need to change and that we're working on. Mm. Uh, and then there were other questions around um, sexual orientation or gender identity. Those other questions, those things are not required in law, but there is a possibility that maybe that is a law that gets proposed and does get passed and is required for all data that's reported to us as well. Um, so 
uh, in those, those are some of the, the legislative policies that are there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will note that um, for us, when we do our interviews, we do ask for sexual orientation and gender identity uh, as part of the interview process as well. And that, again, is a departmental policy. Right. Dr. Ferrer recently acknowledged the American Public Health Association's declaration that addressing law enforcement violence is a public health issue. Can you talk more about how police brutality and racism is a public health issue? You know, it's a, it's an interesting question, and I, I do agree with um, the American Public Health Association. Uh, and I think this sort of begs the question, you know, what is what becomes a public health issue? How do you identify it as such? Uh, and I think in this one, you know, one, um, you know, the increasing prevalence of what we see uh, that uh, does not appear to be justified uh, in terms of the violence or even the deaths that, that many of us have seen in the news or stories we've heard about in the news, um, you know, becomes uh, an issue. Um, and then it appears that that issue is growing. Um, the other is the potential for it to impact other populations. And so I, I think about this in terms of, of George, George Floyd's death. I think what was so um, motivational about uh, it pushing people to do stuff not only here inside the United States but across the world is because many have seen similar stories. Mm-hmm. But it was also very clear in that instance that there wasn't really resistance. There wasn't any uh, fighting or attacking. There wasn't anything else. And for a lot of people, they saw that as just wrong. And if you think about it, George Floyd could have been any one of us, no matter who you are. And so to have um, that ability to do something like that and to have that uh, be identified as wrong, and we'll see what happens in the court case, um, if that remains unchecked, then there is the potential that that could impact all of us, um, no matter who we are. Uh, and so I think, you know, as we look at this, uh, you know, it is something that we must pay attention to, and it's not something that should ever happen. It's not the design of what is supposed to happen. Uh, and, you know, it really is something that we have to pay attention to, especially when we hear, he keep hearing more and more stories like this of others who have died, you know, at the hands of law enforcement in this particular scenario or type of scenario. Thank you for, for that. I just, I have one more question. I asked Dr. Ferrer this question, and I'll ask the same of you. Amidst all of this, the COVID-19 crisis, a global pandemic, the protests, the uncertainty of everything, where do you turn to find hope and peace? Where does Muntu Davis go at the end of the day to find hope? You know, I go home and I look at my wife and my son, uh, you know, who are always the the light in my day. Um, But I also, as I look at my son and every other child in this world, uh, whether they're a young adult or not, um, what we do uh, at this moment sets it up for them. But they're also very smart um, and they're learning at a pace faster than I ever learned. Uh, And I always think if, if I don't do anything, if I don't talk about these things, um, then they won't learn, uh, you know, like I did, you know, growing up. Uh, but I'm also inspired by the numbers of people who are having conversations that haven't been had in a long time, even if these are tough conversations. Uh, and so it's nice to see that. I've also been very touched by uh, seeing different races out, you know, sort of saying Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, which is an acknowledgement of a group that oftentimes people think are forgotten. 
um, you know, given the stats that we see. Uh, and so to have and see the hope of people sort of standing up and saying, you know, what they believe is wrong and what does matter um, when many times people uh, understand and see from data that maybe they don't matter because it's the same data. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm inspired by that, um, the hope that people bring in terms of fighting, uh, you know, against what is wrong and trying to do what's just and right uh, in our society today. Um, and so I think as we move forward, we have to continue these dialogues, but we have to move towards action. And I see a lot of people moving in that direction. So it's just inspiring, even though the work is tough, um, to see people and the hope that they're bringing in terms of their actions. Dr. Montu Davis, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. For more detail on our approaches to reduce the health inequities of COVID-19, check out the link in the show notes for this episode. Additional resources are available at covid19.lacounty.gov. This episode of LA Public Health was produced by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Our department is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents in Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov and follow us on social media at LA Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin, and you've been listening to the LA Public Health Podcast.